0: Welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, where we explore the inner workings of the creative process. I'm your host, Nancy Norbert. Just a quick note to let you know that the Creative Tune-Up Kit I mentioned a few weeks ago is now available. If you are stuck in your creative process in any way, whether you're lapsed or never got started in the first place, even if you don't know what you might want to do, I made the Creative Tune-Up for you. More details at the link in the show notes. Check it out and start getting unstuck today. Author Mark Ryle explores the exciting and ethically daunting world of genetic engineering in his novel, Age Decoded. Focused on the current technology called CRISPR, he explores the wide variety of possibilities the technology opens up. It's a project that brings together his background in math and science as well as teaching. Our conversation digs into the technology, the unusual path to his first encounter with it, and how he used the novel format to delve into the opportunities and issues it presents. We also talk about how important it is to find what Mark calls your genuine self, especially if the path you're meant to be on isn't obvious to you. Here's Mark Ryle. Mark, welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm excited to hear your story.
1: Well, thank you very much. I'm I'm humbled and I'm very pleased to be on uh, Follow Your Curiosity, and thanks for hosting me, Nancy.
0: You're welcome. So let's start. At the beginning of your creative journey, where where were you? How old were you? What was going on when you figured out that you wanted to write a novel or any of the other creative things you do?
1: I'm definitely a late bloomer in terms of trying anything artistic or creative. Um, when I was younger, in high school, I was sort of touted, touted to be um, a math and science guy. I was top of my class in those areas, very strong in those areas. English was my worst subject, although I wasn't <laughs> bad. I got like eighty or eighty-five percent, but I struggled with uh, with those areas compared to math and science. And uh, so I went off the university, and I studied um, uh, engineering. And I also did a master started a master's in science, but I withdrew from that program. And that I think that was the start, right? And right at that point where I dropped out of master's of science. Um, I was at Simon Fraser University in Western Canada in Vancouver. Vancouver. Uh, that was a tough decision, but something inside of me just told me that um, I, I wasn't going to be a pure scientist. I wanted to work with maybe more with people or wanted to do something different. And um, it was a tough decision. I, I did it all on my own. As before smartphones. I didn't even contact my parents. I was out there on my own. And I did not want to come back to Toronto either because I was so embarrassed about dropping out. I was supposed to be a really good student, right? <laughs> So I just stayed out in Vancouver for a whole year thinking about what happened to me. But um, in retrospect, it was a good decision. It it, uh, actually um, turned me towards teaching Um, while I was out there. I know this is a long answer to your first question, but um, while I was out there, I um, started doing a bit of teaching in some of the labs to just sort of make ends meet. And um, I uh, got a really nice compliment from one young man, I can't remember his name, but I was teaching him physiology. And he said, you know, so you're, you're pretty good at explaining things. You're really helping me with this course. And um, that stuck with me, that one compliment. And I thought, you know, maybe I should look into dealing with people and do some teaching and whatnot. And that's really, uh, that was a turning point for me. Now that's still not being really creative, but that was a move towards that creativity. Um, Yeah.
0: So then how did you move from, you know, hey, I think I want to work more with people into ending up writing a novel?
1: Well, when I went into teaching, I did start in reading more. Uh, I just reading a variety of works, some of the classics and some science fiction, but not a lot. Some, but a lot of literature and whatnot. And um, but no, I, I started I was teaching, teaching, uh, I, st- I did some teaching in college and also, but mainly in high school, grade 12 and grade 13. <clears throat> and I was teaching math and economics. And what happened is I was sort of, I was getting into a state where I felt like I was more my genuine self. I started feeling really relaxed. This was me. I was really starting to enjoy it and uh, doing a lot of coaching too. I really really, really got engaged with the coaching, cross country running and track and field. So once I started feeling comfortable with myself, and that, that wasn't until I was probably 35 to 40 years old did I start doing some creative things. And I it began with um, acrylic art. So I have done, um, I've done a, probably about a hundred paintings in the last, since I was about 45 years old um, <clears throat> as a hobby, as a hobby. And uh, and then I started writing this novel about 10 years ago while I was teaching.
0: Is there a link between the painting and the writing?
1: Yeah, I think so. That's where I'm sort of, okay, I'm feeling relaxed, I'm feeling comfortable. And I guess for a lot of your listeners and for, for a lot of creative people, you're probably going to feel like you want to express yourself once you're in a position to do so. And for me, that meant I had to feel comfortable. I had to feel confident and, uh, that took a while, but yeah, so it started with art and then it went into, um, this novel. I had done a few short stories and things like that on the side, but I had never tried publishing anything.
0: It's interesting. Cause I, I, you know, you never know what other kinds of pursuits somebody may have Attempted whether before before or while they were getting to the one that they're here to talk about. So that's really interesting. A hundred paintings is pretty impressive. Thank you. So when it came to writing, because I know that, that this novel is about a particular technology, and I want to give you a chance to tell us about that, but I also am curious to know how how you got from that technology into this book.
1: Yeah. So I, I'm also a very serious uh, athlete. I compete in the triathlon. So I represented <clears throat> our country, Canada, in the world championships um, about seven or eight years ago, I guess. Wow. I, sorry, I started triathlon seven eight years ago, but I represented them three years ago in Switzerland and four years ago in Rotterdam. So to get to that point, I was training with a buddy who's a Teaching friend of mine, he got me into this whole triathlon thing. I was always a runner, so it sort of just I had to learn how to swim and bike. I'm still learning how to swim; that's very tough. (laughs) Uh, But um, anyway, so I got into that, and um, when I started doing it, um, I was competing. We don't compete with the young, you know, 25 year olds. We compete; it's all age groups. Mm -hmm. So I I was in the when I hit the real world championships. I was in the 60 to 65 year old age group. I was actually 60, so I was a younger person in that group, but I was still not young, right? And um I I noticed in some of the conversations, the people in that group who were like 64 or 65 would often say to the younger ones who are 60 like me that you have a big advantage. You're like four years younger. And I'm thinking, how do you know? Like can you actually tell the difference between a 60 and 64 year old? Like when I was 15, they're just both old, right? But um yeah, they can act, they're so fine-tuned they can tell and and as you do get older, the like sixty-two, sixty-three, sixty-four, You can feel yourself slowing down slowly. It's about a 1% decline in your um, aerobic capacity per year at that point. It actually starts dropping off, and um, it's just part of growing old. And uh, so I, I started reading about this, and just for the athletics part, and I discovered that in the world right now, there's a lot of, research going on about aging and stopping aging, trying to reverse aging. And a lot of that is linked to um <clears throat> genetic engineering. So that's where this interest started. And I I thought, wow, that's incredible. I think how that would affect sports. And then I thought, whoa, sports is only the tip of the iceberg. How would it affect the world if we stopped aging, reversed aging? And what else can this genetic engineering stuff do right so that's that's where my curiosity i guess your show is following your curiosity mm-hmm. that, i started following that right away and that was uh, several years ago and then i wrote a draft of the novel which i really could not get published it's very difficult to get anybody to read it it's a tough industry especially science fiction and stuff like that to crack into i'm a first-time author so i couldn't even get a um a new york publisher to um even read a chapter i don't think anybody. Um, offered so <clears throat> I just put it on the side and then when COVID hit about two years ago I just retired from teaching and I had some time and I I um, cracked open the novel again and updated all the science and improved some of it I got a lot of feedback from editors and friends and um, I think I improved it uh, and I definitely modernized it and but the same idea like what would happen in the world where um, aging is suddenly Stopped or even reversed, and uh, so that's where that's how I got to this point.
0: So I know that um, you focused on the CRISPR technology, and I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about what that is and how it how it works and yeah. might work.
1: CRISPR is the current very hot technology in genetic engineering. Actually, two female scientists, um, Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna. Um, teamed up and sort of perfected this, not perfected, but they've really improved it a lot. so they won the Nobel Prize in 2020 just recently for their work on the CRISPR technology. Now there are other technologies, and CRISPR is just a hot one right now, but what it does is it uh, it's probably the best right now. What it can do is it can be used to um, edit, change, delete, add things to the DNA, literally to the you know genetic structure of, um, humans and also other living species.
0: That sounds like what a lot of people think that COVID vaccines are going to do right now.
1: Yeah. It's got some similarities to that in that there's, some, you know, uh, messenger nanobodies involved and it's like, it's inside the body and you're directing things to certain places, but, um, yeah, no, it's, there's some similarities, but it's a little more, um, far reaching because, All bets are off now. If we can change the genetic code by deleting, altering, adding, subtracting parts of people's DNA or other species, we're um, literally going to be changing the nature of some human beings. Not not just not the not just nurturing them like we've had in the past, uh, but literally changing their fundamental uh, structure. The nature could be psychological, and it could be physical. The The traits that we're going to be affecting.
0: And this is like they could do this for you and me, not just, you know, before somebody's born?
1: Yeah, that's a very good question. They can do it with um, germline cells, which are generally things like uh, sperm, egg, and embryos. But they can also do it with full fledged living um, adults or children. There, there are two different techniques, because if you do it with the um, germline ones, which are the eggs and whatnot, you're, you're probably going to affect the entire every piece of DNA in that structure, and as it grows up and passes on, or it's going to be inherited by all future generations, whatever you do there is going to be in the gene pool. Whereas if you do it to an adult and you maybe just do it to part of their body, that may not be inherited forward. It might just affect that single individual. That's actually a big issue because if the former, the one where you do it, the germline is more, is more risky because it, you know, you could have a Jurassic park scenario where, you know, we make these alterations, you don't know what this, you have these unintended consequences and side effects. Right. And it gets into the gene pool of humanity.
0: Yeah. It's that, you know, just because you can doesn't mean you should (laughs) since you brought up Jurassic park, but you know, the the big question that's screaming at me hearing all of this is what kind of ethical constraints are in place or are debated, I would imagine, because I'm sure that there are wildly different points of view on how something like this should be used. I mean, because my my first reaction, having read and watched a whole lot of science fiction, including Jurassic Park, but certainly not only, is... Oh no! And yet, there are obviously going to be legitimate reasons to play with somebody's genetic structure. So, what what does that look like?
1: (laughs) Quite a matrix. So, there's a book right now that just came out. I'll put in a plug for a Canadian uh, nonfiction book. She's a scientist up here, and uh, she sort of reminds me of the heroine in my novel because she's very concerned about the ethical um, side of all this. And in my novel, the the heroine, Dr. Frida invents the method but also is very cautious about the ethical and moral and societal implications. So anyway, this book is called Altered Inheritance and it's written by uh Franco from Canada. She's at Dalhousie University. She's a professor in the field. She's a genomicist and she's very she sort of lays out the whole matrix of all the possible ethical like she like you mentioned some things are probably going to be good like um they're the fairly confident that things like cystic fibrosis and Huntington's disease, perhaps other things like HIV and Alzheimer's will be solvable with this technique. Um, so those those are treatments for things that most of us would agree. Let's, let's see if we can eradicate those things. Um, but then there's a whole matrix of other things that are more like um, enhancement things, like do I want my child to be um, more creative? Or more intelligent, or have brown eyes, and all those things will come into it. And even athletes, I think the World Anti-Doping Agency has already made a statement on this, saying, "Not this. You know, it's like the steroid thing, right? Mm-hmm. You can't, you can't use genetic and engineering to make you stronger, faster, right?" Wow. Yeah.
0: Oof. Now yeah. I'm I'm thinking about the movie Gattaca.
1: Yes. I actually, I just watched that a few weeks ago.
0: I haven't seen it in quite a while, but it definitely made an impression on me. What 20 ish years ago, (laughs) the whole idea of, you know, who's, who's been genetically enhanced and, and who's not, and what that does to your status in society. And I don't know if, if you thought about that in terms of your book or, or if that's a separate thing that made you go back to the movie or not, but it's, it, yeah. it left an impression on me
1: <laughs> there's some huge moral issues involved now, you asked also how could we address this or maybe control it it 's very difficult it 's going to be it 's a little like with nuclear technology. How is the world try to control that we 've done a not a bad job actually um, we have these non proliferation treaties. There was even a treaty this year that was signed for the prohibition of nuclear weapons, and 51 countries signed that, although all the countries that have nuclear, the nine countries, did not sign it. <laughs> but of course. It, of the <laughs> ones who didn't have signed But anyway, we have actually like the Nuclear Suppliers Group and the um, Atomic Energy Committee, I think it's called the World Atomic Energy Group, has done a pretty good job, actually, of controlling it. And we have spent a lot of money on nuclear weapons, but we've sort of kept it under control and um that's probably what's going to happen and have to happen here so there's a lot of committees and commissions that have already been set up Francois uh, francais that professor from canada I mentioned has been on a couple of them and she mentions them in her book um but it's it's not going to be easy and um we're going to need we're going to need buy-in from everybody awareness buy-in and part of my mission in writing this book is just to educate the public about the different things that could happen. Um, some of the it's a, it is a double-edged sword, but I'm I'm pretty optimistic. I think it'll generally be pretty positive for humanity.
0: How did you approach writing the novel, knowing that you wanted to educate people about it, but you also wanted to write a good book? And I don't know what to to what degree this might have fit into that process from the beginning, or if it may have been more, you know, in process or toward the end. But I'm curious to know if you had a particular point of view going in, and if writing the book changed that or not.
1: Yeah, it, it was all pretty malleable. Like, it started with this um, 17-year-old character sort of waking up 200 years in the future. He had been Cryo preserved using another technology, and when he woke up, he discovered that um, <clears throat> uh, people who he knew were, were still the same age. He was trying to figure out how how could that be? How could, first of all, how could they even be alive, and why didn't they age any? And stuff like that was going on. So, but then I, um, as I said, I first wrote that part probably eight years ago. And uh I brought in then another character, Dr. Frida, because all the science was exploding, especially the last few years. It's just with the Nobel Prize and all that. And some of the nonfiction books out so like The Code Breaker by Walter Isaacson, which is a bestseller. Um so I I wanted more science in there. So I brought in this what turned out to be the main character, which is Dr. Frida. And she she's the one who invents age decoding, which stops aging. <clears throat> um, but she's very nervous about it actually and the government tries to muzzle her and try to push her aside because if they could bring this in they'd be so popular everybody would go for it and most it would be it would be free of charge and most people do go for it and um it sort of it, it sort of entrenches their popularity and and um and it's it's offered free to everyone so most people opt for it and um, so Dr. Frida, they take her and they, they have to muzzle her sort of thing. So that what they do is they actually, I'm not giving away too much because this happens early in the book, they fake her suicide. They make it look like she's killed herself, uh, which devastates her daughter um, and um, also her husband. But uh, they, they, they don't kill her. They just actually take her away and they lock her away underground and force her to work on reverse aging. and um so that sort of muzzles her and but keeps her strong mind working for the government and um everybody else thinks she's perished uh self-inflicted suicide and so that's the sort of the premise for the novel
0: it's interesting because you have that whole government angle in there which is also in its way a statement about you know it's not just what do ordinary people do with this technology it's what do governments decide to do with it do they decide to i don't know hoard it for themselves or do horrible things with it you know i mean how many science fiction movies have we seen the government never does good things in the science fiction right. movie ever um it, you know so so that's definitely an interesting angle and potentially a statement depending on you know how much of that was just organic story and how much was intentional on your part. so so yeah, i'm I'm wondering how how all that comes together. and again, I don't want you to give away everything, but you know, what can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, there are corporations involved too, so I just gotta say that. you know anything oh, yeah. big, anything big, <laughs> we've got to watch carefully, right? So uh, yeah uh, so, but the the uh, in the current situation, it's corporations, the government um so you have and and scientists like university think tanks um for example the broad institute at mit um the whitehead institute which is near mit um various people associated with harvard university Kyoto university tokyo so you have a whole hodgepodge of players here who um are uh, intrinsically involved, and some of them are in more than one camp. So, for example, even Jennifer Doudna won the Nobel Prize. She's a scientist, but she's also uh, involved with um, Telia Corporation, which um, which is involved with the CRISPR technology. And so, um, it's a pretty complicated setup, set of players. And I think that comes through in the novel. And what that means though, there's no easy solution. And um, in my novel, yeah, there's a focus, I guess, on the government being sort of the corrupt one. Although a lot of my, there's a couple other main characters are in the government and they're very good people who are trying to figure out how to change things from within Uh, or whether they're gonna work for, there's a slight, there's a small opposition party that is sort of emerging in the book how to collaborate with them and and, um, and maybe work against their own government. So, you know, there are some good people in um, in every camp in this book struggling, including Frida's the one that, that is the best, but she's also completely contained for 200 years. Can you imagine being locked away for 200 years? Your family thinks, you know your family is still alive and they think you're dead and you can't reach out to them. And they even play mind games with her. Like they have one, this one um scenario where they have her actually communicating um with her uh, husband he thinks he's communicating with some sort of a super artificial super intelligence um machine and her voice is disguised it's sort of you know how they can take a Mm -hmm. voice and you know so it's made to sound like a computer and um she uh she can't really she can talk to them, but she can't really even touch them or reach out to them or tell them the truth. Or she she does try to relay a couple of little hints in the conversation, but she has to be very careful about what she says. It'll be if it, there's a bit of a delay in what she says, so it'll be filtered out anyway, or she'll be she'll be killed if she tries to reveal her identity. So it's very, very frustrating for a lot of people in the book. But um such is the nature of dystopia, right? <laughs>
0: well, and such is the nature of writing. If you're, you know, if your characters have it too easy, something's probably not right.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And
0: it's your job <laughs> to make their lives difficult. So where do you stand on, on what you think is gonna come of this technology? Is it ultimately gonna be a good thing? Is it just gonna be a super mixed bag? Or
1: I think it's going to be an amazing. Technology that's going to bring forth a, a lot of positive from things like blindness to um, <clears throat> um, actually even obesity. They're they're now zeroing in on the genes that are involved with um, that tend to make more people obese easier. Like their study just came out on the, that recently. Depression definitely, uh, schizophrenia, uh, bipolar. You you name the affliction and the are seriously circling the wagons on it with um genetic engineering right now some of them are going to be pretty simple like cystic fibrosis apparently it's just literally the flipping of the position of one set of nucleotides which is like the two it's basically a very specific part of the dna instead of cg it's gc Mm but they already have the technology to flip a cg to a gc so some, and Huntington's apparently is just one gene, whereas a lot of these other things are not going to be so easy, like depression and creativity and intelligence and um, chronic pain. They involve, they, they're seeing right now that they involve multiple genes and overlapping genes with other traits. So you got to be careful if you're going to tinker with this gene, what are you going to really do to the person, right? So, but I, all in all, I think it's going to be. An incredible breakthrough. It's going to be a tsunami. It's just starting right now, and um, I think it's just going to take off in the next ten or twenty years. And we just need to harness it, keep it positive, keep everybody aware of it, and make sure it's used for the good of humanity.
0: So I I don't know if you know enough about the specifics of how this works to answer this question or not, but as you're talking about just flipping the cystic fibrosis gene, I'm I'm trying to picture, and I don't have enough of a scientific background to even do much more than probably stumble my way through this question, <laughs> but, you know, is that something that you just do in one place and then it propagates elsewhere? Or, I mean, is that like a sea change that you have to go through?
1: Yeah. So apparently you can't just do it in one place and then it's sort of, you know, no, you have to target the area of the body that you want it to happen. I can give you an example. Right now, there's a horrible affliction called Canavan's disease, which uh, hits children. So it's pretty rare, thank God. And so there's a hospital in Dayton, Ohio, where they're bombarding their brains with um, trillions of uh, viruses that carry the genetic um, instructions for CRISPR. And then it's supposed to go into, I guess, billions of brain cells and change the genetic code. They're, they're also in a similar method for a very rare type of blindness. They're going um, right into people's eyes and injecting um, a similar thing. They're bombarding the the eye tissue. So it's fairly specific. But it's not going to just be one cell, right? Or it'll be millions of cells or billions of cells in those areas. A more recent, very exciting finding <clears> was there's a liver disease, I think it's called amyloidosis. And um, just a few weeks ago, they they published this. And this stock, this company I mentioned that Jennifer Doudna owns, it went up 50% when they published this study in one day. And what they found is they could inject into the blood, so sort of generally into the blood system, um, a <clears throat> particles, which would then move, would be targeted themselves to the liver area and then do the genetic editing in the liver. So that's pretty cool. That's a general application, not going through the eyeball or anything, but just blood. But then it finds its way, very specifically targets the tissue that's required. And apparently it was successful. It reduced the nefarious proteins. And um, there were four patients, and so far, very good results. Wow.
0: I I am. I have this whole like fleet of various science fiction movies rattling around in my head right now, because I am thinking back to Gattaca and how, you know, you essentially have the haves and the have-nots, and you're limited in your career options. And, you know, I don't remember what else, but I know that was a big one. If you haven't been genetically engineered, and I can see where You know, there are plenty of people, you know, deaf people who are perfectly happy to be deaf and don't want implants and resent the implication that they should have implants and things like that. And I'm obviously Uh, literally just thinking out loud here, but I can see such a potential for division and conflict between the people who say, yeah, sure, give me my hearing back and the people who say, hey, no, leave me alone
1: actually that's a really good example because a lot of people who aren't deaf like me think oh deafness must be terrible but a lot of people who are deaf or people who are closely aligned with that community <clears throat> or associated with them or family members they don't think of deafness as a bad thing right they right. Just think of it as a natural thing and these people have learned to live with that through it uh within it and they don't want to um they don't want to not be deaf, actually. And uh, so we have to be careful how we project our standards on other groups. And, uh, yeah, so, and actually, Francois Baylis brings up that deafness example, like the one you just cited in her book, uh, as how carefully, how careful we must be when, with all these ethical decisions and things. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think some things are going to be pretty obvious. Other things are going to be, whoa, should we... Be paying for that with public funding, and other things will not be paid for publicly. It'll be the wealthier who will get access to that no doubt' of, no doubt in my mind
0: of course, they always do <laughs> but yeah and i'm I'm also wondering about you know the the crazed mad scientist type who decides. I don't care what your ethical standards are. I want to, you know, turn one person into somebody else because I'm, I'm thinking back to, I can't remember which James Bond movie it was where there's a villain from North Korea who undergoes a treatment and comes out as Toby Stevens. And so, it, you know, I mean, because theoretically, it might be possible to do something like that, whether you should, whether that, you know, obviously has huge ethical implications. So. So yeah, I'm thinking the ethical framework for this kind of thing must have to be enormous and deeply intricate.
1: Completely. Very well said. (laughs) I have no solution though. I'm just writing the book.
0: Right, right. No, I'm just, I'm kind of overwhelmed just trying to imagine what that would even look like just
1: vaguely. So, well, in in my book, Age Decoded, what I did is I I focused on two um, changes. One is fairly physical, just aging which is seen as a a lot of scientists see it as a disease that must be eradicated aging for example um george church at harvard university david sinclair at harvard university and a big name in Kyoto university is uh, Shinya yamanaka um there there are various others who are just saying we're going to get rid of aging that's it um and they they're They're bound and determined to do it. George Church is predicting 10 years from now, he's going to get rid of aging and maybe be able to reverse it. In my book, it doesn't happen in 10 years. It's 2053. So um, I can't remember where I started this answer, you know, but um, (laughs) (laughs) somehow I got sidetracked. But um, that, uh, you know, it's it's incredible science. Um, We have to be open-minded. I probably, I'm projecting that a lot of baby boomers might be around just around the time when maybe this is going to happen, which would be interesting because you could be 95 years old and then given the choice, do you want to lock in at 95 or just try to eke out a couple more years and die? That'd be a tough choice, actually, right? That would. One fellow in my book is old and he locks in and he sort of regrets it after a couple hundred years because he's just, like he says, he's on the precipice just looking at death and he's so frail. And um, and then his daughter says, yeah, but they're going to bring in reverse aging. Sorry, his granddaughter uh, says, um, they're going to bring in reverse aging when they bring that in. In 50 years, we'll be the same age.
0: I was just thinking that and I thought how absolutely bizarre that would be to be the same age as your grandparent.
1: Yeah, And then, um, they're all, they're all related to Frida, Frida, who's locked away. So she's the daughter of Frida who thinks Frida's, her mother has killed herself. So when Frida maybe finally gets released, she could be, uh, 30 years older than her, her, her father, right? It'd be bizarre, all these things. Um, and there's so many other societal things, like just on the aging thing, that's the physical thing. And then, um, I brought in one mental thing. So you have to have a scandal. I brought in a um, a little bit of tinkering that goes on while people are getting this free product for Age Decoded for, for being immortal. While they're in there, there's a little bit of more tinkering that goes on that they're unaware of, which affects um, part of their psychology and how they behave. I don't want to say anything Again, more.
0: Again, all of my long history of watching science fiction TV and movies is making all the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. I you know, I'm also wondering like what because the other very obvious question to me seems to be if if we stop aging and definitely if we reverse it, where are we gonna put everybody?
1: Yeah, so you're going to need some population control. And I, I have dealt with that in this society where um, children, you basically have to win a lottery to have a child. You have to be very lucky to have the rights to a child. <laughs> so there's one uh, I wonder if you don't mind if I read one excerpt from it. Oh, go for it. Because it started directly, if I can find it here, it directly um, relates to that. Because what would it be like if now um, most people are 25 years old because they've reversed age by this point, and you won't have a lot of young people because you're not allowed to bring more, too many more humans into this society. Right? Mm-hmm. So um, I've got a, a scene here where... Um, uh there are still some kids and they're playing a soccer game now but they're really rare so adults come into this game adults most adults don't have children right so they come into this game and they sort of adopt the kid for an hour and (laughs) they can pretend they're their parent you know and um get that feeling of being a parent cheering for a kid and they have to pay for this actually and um and then the the children so the scenario here is the setting There's there's a soccer pitch field and then just beside the field, there, there's a fence and then right on the other side of the fence, there's this huge old um, graveyard with a lot of old stones and grass and weeds growing between it. OK, so right adjacent to soccer. So um, I got I have a just um, one scene here. Um you can find it here. Oh, yeah. Yeah, here it is. Um During the soccer game, those old stones stood as one in the background, not in opposition to the youthful game in the foreground, but as a subconscious set of spirits gathered to follow a beautiful game, to worship the litheness and exuberance of the playing children, and to earn some respect in return. That respect came in the form of furtive glances from the young girls and boys in the direction of the stones, as if to say to them, we know you're there, We can see you when we want to, and we very much know what you're about. At this boundary between the cemetery and the soccer pitch, the old and the young, the two forlorn groups of Zone 1 whispered unified statements and made mutual offerings.
0: Wow. That's quite the image.
1: Yeah, so you have those forlorn groups. They're going to be a limit. You won't have old people, you won't have young people. You're just going to have a bunch of very healthy 25-year-olds in the extreme, right?
0: Yeah. Wow.
1: And uh, so people have to think very carefully what's society going to be. Zymana, who's the daughter of Frida, is also a fairly big character here. She thinks her mother's killed herself. She knows she'll never have children. And her father left her because he just got horrified by the whole situation with his mother so he sort of just left town so that's why your grandfather's looking after and anyway but the whole intergenerational thing grandparents great grandparents mothers fathers daughters and all that that will be um turned right upside down in this type of society
0: This is no small project you took on with this book.
1: (laughs) The implications are incredible. So like, uh, yeah, I was, even to the last moment, I was throwing in some things and even thinking, trying to think of other things, like what kind of technology will there be out 200 years? And what will New York, my two main city settings are New York City and New Orleans. Um, What will they be like in 200 years? Will there be a New York subway? I say, yes, I still think there'll be (laughs) some. So I left it in there. I couldn't think of anything else better than, but um, a lot of, a lot of projecting the future yeah it's 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 so, so much fun writing science fiction i never thought i'd write a novel and i never thought it'd be or write fiction at all i've written a lot of non-fiction reports and things like that but never but it's been a really fun creative process um and i do think i can educate the world through this i think it's better than doing a non-fiction on genetic engineering, because <clears throat> first of all, there's been a lot of really good nonfiction on it. I mentioned Walter Isaacson's book, um, but through the characters and fiction, you can really get people to imagine deep down, feel, and what is it really going to be like deep in, in their blood, in their skin, in their mind, in their heart, all of that. And you can't do that with the, and also, projecting 200 years out it's got to be fiction anyway right nobody knows what's going to happen 200 years out even the top scientists couldn't write that so it, it would be fiction for them anyway so it was so much fun doing this
0: I, I can imagine I mean it's a, a huge playing field that you gave yourself but also you're right you know when you can have a, a fabulously written non-fiction book that's super accessible and it still isn't it's not going to use story in the same way and story is how we make meaning out of things. So there's no question that even if, you know, a scientist sits down and says, I'm going to extrapolate as to what this might mean and uses a couple of little vignettes or something. It's still, it'll help, but it still isn't going to have the same impact. I mean, going back to Jurassic Park, we think about genetic engineering. We think about, you know, what you can pull from a fossil and recreate in terms of that movie, because that's what we've all seen. So, so yeah, I think it's, it's a huge platform of of what if but you also get to demonstrate so many possibilities in a way that you just wouldn't otherwise
1: yeah so and it's happening right now it's uh like for example uh a, maybe some of your listeners have heard of this but they're they genetic engineering mosquitoes already and they've just released some in the florida keys yes. where you might have read about that and uh so they they that's called a gene driver just Bring the new type of mosquitoes into that environment and drive out the ones that are carrying dengue and yellow fever or whatever else is afflicting humans. And apparently the mosquitoes down there were were invasive mosquitoes anyway. They weren't natural to that, so they're trying to drive them out, and they think they can. And um, I've even heard that, like the coral reef, for example, with global warming is going to is affecting the coral reef right now. It's I think it, the coral. Doesn't grow very well if the water temperature gets too hot mm-hmm. So they're they're looking at genetically engineering the coral to may be more resistant to warm water, and maybe have a comeback with that reef. So the the possibilities here are quite endless for impu- improving humans. The worst case scenario I could see is um, bioterrorism or something because we've all seen what happened sure. with COVID, right? Uh, how it just took the world to its knees.
0: A mm-hmm.
1: natural virus, right? So. That would be the word that would be the one that that's the one that Bill Gates uh has spoken out against, saying that's that's something we gotta watch very carefully. But I, I was also reading that um the uh where is it, the Broad Institute I mentioned earlier from MIT has come up with a anti CRISPR um technique. So anti-CRISPR, so <clears throat> it will fight any it could it could serve as an antidote to some sort of uh thing like that because it it protects the body from any genetic editing um so um you know it's just something we need to learn more about we're going to hear more and more about it um the it's great that um people like francois are writing the The nonfiction on it and she about the ethics and the society and there's lots of commissions and committees but we don't want to we don't want just the politicians and and um, corporate business people doing this we need more we need everybody getting involved and knowing about this yeah
0: yeah we've seen too many instances in the past year where politicians meddle in science when they have no idea what they're talking about so definitely agree on that front so I want to go back to something that you said way, way, way back at the beginning about feeling more comfortable and like your genuine self right. Tell us what that means and what that led to for you,
1: yeah, so I think a lot of people are are like me that they're it takes them a while to discover their sort of sweet spot or I call it the genuine self. It's not necessarily what you're best at either. Um, like teaching took me time. To learn how to do it, it wasn't natural. I was probably better at math and science, Um, but and it took me a while. Like I was 35 years old before I started hitting my stride. And there's a lot of people like that. You have to be really patient. There's a saying I have put out there uh, in a couple other podcasts, and it's it's a wonderful phrase by Kurt Vonnegut Jr. And he says he said, and I didn't know what he meant by this for the longest time, but now I know. I think I know. He said, "We are what we pretend to be." So we must be careful about what we pretend to be. Ooh. And that, that's pretty profound. At first I thought, is he is he just thinking, saying that like life is some sort of stage drama and we're just acting all the time. We're not our genuine selves. No, actually, I don't think so. He's saying we have choices. We can pretend to be, adopt any role we want. We are that, but we're going to be that, right? You have to pretend to be something, and so be careful about what you pretend to be, right? So, And I think, for me, that was a very tough um, uh, recognition, personal recognition. Once I learned that I wanted to do something more humane, uh, I did a lot of teaching economics, actually, which is not as mathematical as people think. It's very subjective. There's lots of politics and psychology and business and current events involved. That was actually really good for me, teaching economics. Um, and showing all the trade-offs and all the messy stuff there and all the human aspects. Um, so, and teaching itself and coaching, dealing with humans. That was the best thing for me. It got me off of my pure math science track and into really, really, I uh, think, more things that really turned me on more and made me um, more more comfortable, more genuine, more energized. And um, so if, there, if there's listeners out there who you know are struggling with their career or wondering you know is this right for me and all that i say just be patient um it might take you a while to unlock whatever that genuine self is keep trying things but um you know failures i think churchill said failure is not um, fatal right success is not final and failure is not fatal so try things if you want to drop out change switch go for it and don't don't pigeonhole yourself. Like you could be, you like I never thought I'd ever write a book. I thought, I, here I am on a podcast talking about some book I wrote. Never thought I'd <laughs> ever be in that position. Um, <clears throat> so you just never know. And um, it was a big, it was a long struggle for me, but it, uh, it was worth it. There was some serendipity in there too because because it took so long. And even for trying to publish this novel and having problems publishing it, that was serendipity too. Because now it's a very hot topic, and I just self-published it. I didn't even look out to any publishers a few months ago when I self-published it. Now there may be a publisher interested. Now Um, we'll see how that works out. But um, I'm happy to self-publish, and um, you know, it's just an ebook, but. I'm looking into a print book right now too. So that'd be cool. Try that. Maybe even an audio book. It's fun, it's fun trying all these things. It's, um, you know, it's an adventure. <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah.
0: <clears throat> so was there a particular moment when you realized you'd landed in that genuine spot or did it just kind of happen gradually for you?
1: I think it was gradual. And even teaching, it took me... You know, I was good at explaining things like that young man when he complimented me years ago. But I still—it took me a while to figure out how to deal with adolescents, keep them interested, organize things well. That's not easy, right? So I'd say it even took me three to five years of teaching to feel like I really hit my stride. And then when I started coaching, that was that was the best thing. Coaching cross country running, running was so was a wonderful thing. And um, it—I uh, was running at that point too. And my daughter sort of got me into running, believe it or not she was running so it's sort of it it was good because it's synchronized with my family wife with my daughter with my own goals and then also with the school's goals trying to build up a cross-country team so it was just it was a great experience um, outside the teaching Um, so I really hit my stride the last 10 or 15 years of teaching and coaching
0: that's fantastic and I like the way that you know you mentioned if you had published this book when you first wrote it, it wouldn't have been as hot a topic as it is now. So it might not have have worked as well. So it seems like things just kind of fall into place the way they're supposed yeah.
1: to. And also self-publishing is much more viable now than it was 10, 10 years ago. Much more. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Do you see finding your genuine self as the same thing as finding your purpose or are they different Things.
1: Think? I I think they're fairly similar. And my generous self is to I love educating others. Well, myself as I do it, like even when I was teaching economics, I was always learning and reading about it. And I kind of found it fascinating. I, I even thought of going back and doing a PhD in economics. Because my PhD is not in economics, it's in education. So um <clears throat> um so you know, just learning, um, moving forward. Um you know, um, I don't know how else to answer that question. <laughs> um, but it—it's um, the listeners out there. There is, there is, a genuine self. Some people just hit their stride, no problem. They graduate from university, or they maybe not even the university, and they just go right onto the workforce and never look back. And you know, they—that's—that's that's fine. But there's a lot of people like me, who whether they're artists or not whatever they choose to do will require some time and some experimentation and some failure. And uh, there's another quote I love by Helen Keller. And she said that uh, security is primarily a superstition. And uh, obviously she went, Helen Keller went through a lot. Right. But uh, just that idea of nobody's going to be secure anyway, it's a superstition. You're going to have to risk, try things, and worry and fail and wonder, but at some point you will probably find something. So, if, is it? Is it? Uh, I know you asked about. Is it? Uh, I don't know the term you use. Was it um, helping others or uh, a mission to help others or a mission? Purpose. A, yeah. A purpose. Yeah. So, I think once you hit that side and you're comfortable within your own skin, then you will. Find a purpose and be much more confident in expressing yourself with others. Um, I do believe the purpose, the ultimate purpose of life, is to obviously not how much money you make or anything, but to um, impact others. And one great way is art or art or writing, because when I die, my art will still live on, and my novel will still live on. And it's sort of cool to think of that. Impacting others beyond your own life, right?
0: Yeah. And I, I get this image of everything just kind of lining up the way that it's supposed to line up between your genuine self and the, the purpose or your mission or however you choose to think about that. And then being able to put that out into the world. It feels like that's something that sort of creates its own momentum once it gets rolling.
1: Yeah. But it really takes a while for some people. Like, I you know, the the novel... Angela's Ashes by Frank McCourt, which is really a popular bestseller. I think he wrote it when he was sixty-seven, if mm-hmm. I'm not mistaken, after after uh, re, um, retiring from teaching. So, <clears throat> and other many other artists have done things later. So there's no point in your life where you have to say I can't do this, or oh, I've never done this, so I you know I should never consider it. You should never pigeonhole yourself. You just never know.
0: I'm thinking of the term late bloomer. And what's coming to mind for me is actually something I saw on a TikTok video a couple weeks ago, where a guy was sort of, you know, if he were a minister and his sermon was, there's no such thing as a late bloomer. Everything happens when it's supposed to happen. You're right on time, even if you don't think you are. And I I think that is a powerful idea, too, because late bloomer... Is an idea I've always liked, but it can have this connotation of what's taking you so long, and that may not really yeah. be accurate.
1: Yeah, exactly. Plus, we're all going to live forever in a few a couple more <laughs> decades, so it's, that's going to make no sense at all. He's right? a bloomer; doesn't matter. He's uh three hundred years old chronologically, but only twenty-five biologically. That's what it's going to be. So that's amazing. Uh, yeah. I, well, we'll see. We'll see about all that, but. Um, there are some skeptics and whatnot. I'm pretty optimistic. I really think it's going to happen and there's going to be a huge positive impact for for our world. But um, there, there are people with moral issues and skeptics and people think we're going to be playing God, you know, and in a sense, uh, well, this is definitely crossing into a new territory though, because we are changing human nature or the nature of species. Uh, we're not just nurturing anymore. We're literally changing the hard wiring uh the god like some would say god-given hard wiring of the dna which is an immense mechanism um somebody asked a question on quora um why aren't there two human beings with all the human beings being born why aren't there two people who are identical like not identical twins but just the same mm-hmm. <clears throat> i tried to answer it that there's um three billion base pairs and um if you each base pair has four permutations so just do the math there's no way like even if there's no way that's all gonna align right it's like saying mm-hmm. two chimpanzees randomly typing are gonna produce the same book when you only have like right a, a eight billion chimpanzees saying they're gonna do it you're gonna need trillions and, trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions to the exponent trillions of chimpanzees there before you get the same book
0: All these big numbers, mind-boggling.
1: Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, there is some math in there too. I I have fun with them. And there's some, I've enjoyed the technology too. So I put in a thing about, um, you know how we always use smartphones right now, right? Like Mm -hmm. I'm addicted addicted to mine. I didn't use one about six years ago. Now I'm, of course, addicted. I don't know about you. How are you? How are you? (laughs) Okay. It's scary. (laughs) Yeah, probably most of your listeners too. So, But I I do think um, these will be eliminated fairly soon i don't know about the same time frame so i have in my book there's neurointegrated transmitters and actually i'm just reading about the Neuralink by elon musk technology company i think it's called Neuralink, where they've already started doing that so they have a neural mechanism that links with about 50 neurons in the pig brains they're already trying with pigs so it em- embellishes itself integrates with uh you know dozens of neurons already and in my book, it's uh, like you won't need smartphones. You'll just be directing the instructions and messages or whatever, and searching the web or whatever, in through through your mind through commands coming from your mind. But then um, there's a few people in my book who are quite worried about that because you can communicate using this neurointegrated transmission. I call them NITs. Uh, but if you can communicate through it, who can listen to that, and also? Let's see, it must start with a self-thought, right? Before it transmits to someone else. So does that mean they can also read your mind? Ooh. Yeah. yeah. That's my next book, maybe. I don't know.
0: <laughs> it's, it's reminding me of a book that I read about 10 years ago called Feed. And I think, if I'm remembering right, the author's name was M.T. Anderson. And, I'll have to check that. And it. What what I really remember from that was a good look at, you know, how this could all go wrong and mess with your wiring and whatever. But also, you know, you, you went to the mall, you walked into the store and all of the sales and everything would just pop right into your head because, you know, sort of like what Facebook does with ads only right there in your brain. And I remember thinking, I don't think I like that idea. (laughs) I don't think I want them selling right into my, into my brain. I'm not, not sure that sounds good to me though.
1: Sacred, eh? Yeah.
0: Your own thoughts. I, I don't, mm. but (laughs) it, it, it was, it was definitely worth a read just to consider those possibilities. So, you know. I, I think that's really the the power of science fiction and dystopian fiction and, you know, all, all of that is you can explore all of those ideas and maybe we explore some of those ethical issues before they become issues and say, gee, we don't really think we should be bringing the dinosaurs back after all. I think it's good that we play around with this stuff and writing gives us the freedom to explore it. And certainly for in your case, it seems to have been the perfect combination of all of your backgrounds and interests to delve into this and then write about it.
1: I'd probably never have done this because she got me into running because she went out running on her own when she was eight years old and I had to go with her just to make sure she didn't get lost. That That's pretty young to want to be doing some running training. like So, I went with her. My first steps were her first steps. And then um, uh, we, well, if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have been interested in the whole aging and triathlon thing and performance, which I would not have been curious about genetic engineering. And I wouldn't have started writing, doing the research and writing that novel 10 years ago. And so everything connected there. It's sort of weird.
0: That's great, though. I love it when all these pieces come together just the way they're supposed to be. I feel like that's a great place to stop, actually. So thank you so much for coming and talking to me. This has been a lot of fun.
1: Thank you, Nancy. It was an absolute pleasure. And you've got a great show going. And I I appreciate you uh, hosting me and letting me talk about my new novel.
0: That's our show. My thanks to my guest, Mark Ryle, and to you. If you enjoyed this episode, please pass it on to a friend. Thanks. You can find show notes, the six creative beliefs that are screwing you up, and more at fycuriosity.com. I'd also love for you to join the conversation on Instagram. You'll find me at fycuriosity. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. See you next time.